My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Sam Chase. As I record this intro, my children are screaming upstairs, which once you listen to the conversation, you'll see is perfectly appropriate to the conversation that Sam and I have today, which is a remarkably deep, thoughtful, and heartfelt exploration of what it means to show up at the center of the places where we have agency, where we can actually do something, and we're aware of our capacity to do something. And that includes, for both of us, what it means to be a parent in the midst of a pandemic. So right after I record this intro, I'm going to go upstairs and check in with the kiddos. And if you hear them in the background in the meantime, then uh, I hope you can connect to this world we find ourselves in, where our different lives and identities are crashing up against each other in remarkable, challenging, heart-opening, difficult ways. And in the spirit of what Sam and I explored, the name of this episode is Awake in a Hurting World. I want to share more with you about uh, how Sam's work connects to that. Sam is uh, one of the most gifted mindfulness meditation teachers that I have ever met. I had the good fortune of working with the Kripalu School of Yoga and Health here in Massachusetts as part of a program called RISE, which was explicitly about bringing mindfulness practices directly to people working in some of the highest stress, highest stakes sectors in our country, first responders, educators, uh, healthcare providers. And Sam was one of the originators of that program. He did the hard labor of stitching together the ancient mystical wisdom embodied in Kripala's lineage with the modern Western medical research that demonstrates that the mindfulness practices can have a massive impact on how we relate to reality as it is, which gives us way more capacity to respond to reality with creativity and grace and possibility, um, while also being deeply compassionate for all of the ways in which we might meet reality with fear or avoidance or resistance, and that there's no, there's no moral good or better for one or the other, but rather that mindfulness can help us be with all of that is. And so Sam and I explore deeply into the paradoxes that shape our society. And he shares some poignant and potent stories from his work about helping people encounter the truth of their suffering and the truth of their challenges 
and to discover inside of that uh, some new doorway towards a new way of being in the world, a new way of showing up for your kids, or for the people you love, or for the people you serve, or for the communities that you're a part of. Sam is also the author of a, a wonderfully rich book called Yoga and the Pursuit of Happiness, which really goes deep into the that meeting of um, yogic wisdom and Western understanding. So if, if you like what you hear today in this conversation, if it sparks something in you, maybe you won't like it. Maybe, maybe a part of you will go like, oh, that actually sounds harder than I thought. I thought meditation was supposed to just be about relaxation and Zen and calm. But if you have a, if there's something of a spark in what Sam shares today, then I highly recommend his book. Um, it is a deep, dense, and humorous exploration of um, ancient wisdom from the Bhagavad Gita and the Yoga Sutras, paired with the latest research in neurobiology and mindfulness impact there. So that's Yoga and the Pursuit of Happiness. Sam will also hopefully uh, record a meditation to share with us. Um, at some point, if you're hearing this on the day of release, you won't hear that meditation, but at some point in the next week or two, that meditation will be edited into the end of this episode and we'll also include it for download at, uh, at our website. So let's get settled in. And hear what Sam has for us. Hey, Sam. So good to see you. Hey, Andy. Thanks for having me. Nice yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm in touch in this moment with, um, we have, sh- I've had the good fortune of sharing a number of spaces with you in sort of full embodied three dimensions. Uh, yeah. and, and even though we can only kind of see each other from the shoulders up here, I'm just really appreciating, uh, the ways in which this moment's kind of evoking, those those gatherings we've had together through our work with Rise at Kripalu and and hopefully maybe we'll talk a bit about Rise and, and the spirit of that today. But I just sort of want to acknowledge and appreciate you and and the spaces that we've shared already up to this moment. Oh, thank you for that. It's such a such a great excuse to reconnect. Yeah, yeah. So, Sam, I um, I invited you because. I encounter you as a, like one of the highest integrity practitioners I've met in my work around your commitment to, to both living your life. If if you're comfortable with this language, kind of your life's calling or your Dharma or a path that speaks to you and also sharing that with others in a way that's really rooted in, and your understandings of the best wisdom and best science and best practices that we know to sort of say, this is why this matters to me. And this is why it might be of service to you. So I just, I want, I want to like enter into that space of, of service and sharing that I see you embody, which is even in the, in the short time we worked together, I saw help a lot of people, educators, first responders, uh, who are dealing with a lot of stress and a lot of pain and a lot of suffering and just want to, I want to, so I kind of want to explore that spirit in that space. And I want to name that. I don't know the whole story and I'm hoping maybe we can touch into it, that that wasn't always the journey you were on, that there was a sort of 
a moment in your somewhat recent past where you kind of reached your own place of stress and challenge. And then that like kind of sent you in this direction that you're on now. So if, if you're comfortable, <laughs> I'd kind of like to play yeah. with those two poles of the picture. Yeah. What's, yeah, what's happening I'm, for you as I name I'm that? laughing. I'm laughing because when you said when you reached your own moment of stress and challenge in my head, I thought, oh, you mean this morning? <laughs> yeah. uh, because I don't, I don't feel like that's a, a, a moment that peaked and then went away. And, mm. and actually mm. so much of, I feel like so much of the, the stuff that I end up sharing with folks is really just my own effort to make sense of the mess that is human existence and mm. how we get through the day in a good way, which I feel like I can do some days. And not so well some other days. Um, but I've, you know, I've always been pretty nerdy by disposition. And I feel like academics and everything that comes with it was for me, is for me, both a helpful lens through which I can look at the world and study the world. And also, to be quite honest, a space that feels... Uh, it's like safe because it's removed and everything that comes with the stereotype of the ivory tower and all the pitfalls that come with the space like that, I think are true for me. If I don't mm -hmm. watch it, I can hide out inside a stack of double blind peer reviewed journal articles. <laughs> but I feel like if I do my, if I do me in a better way, I can use that as a kind of way of getting my bearings and, and making a doorway in mm. to the stuff that really matters, which is the stuff like, how do I want to be when I'm with my kids? You know, what kind of trail do I want to leave behind mm. when I'm done? You know, mm. the, the real world things, mm. which if I'm totally honest, are so freaking scary. Mm. Like, I, I don't know how it is for you. But for me, I look around and I'm like, we all just woke up here and we are all trying to figure it out. And anyone who says otherwise is selling you a bill of goods. Mm. Like, mm. I feel really itchy and nervous around people who stand up in front of a group of folks and are like, I got all my shit together. Because <laughs> that's not my experience. There often um, seems to be like an inverse relationship between like the level to which someone is claiming to have their shit together and to like the level to which there is something falling deeply apart, uh, just out of sight. If, uh, you don't know to look for it seems to be that way. <laughs> There's something about that. There's something about that. And even just in the day to day, I can speak for myself and I'd love to hear how this lands with you, but like there are parts of me that do want to make people think that I'm okay, because in some way, if they thought I wasn't, they may, might reject me or might, uh, you know, laugh at me or, you know, so there's some like deep need around belonging and safety inside of that impulse to appear together that actually produces a falling, a kind of falling apart because it's just so, ah, it's like so stressful. I, I think so. I think so. I, I, I've always found it that way. I feel both that temptation, you know, I'm a person who does public speaking for a living. Yeah. And I, I do public speaking around things like meditation and resilience. And 
I imagine for some folks, as soon as they see my name and what I do, they might imagine that my home life happens with my feet like an inch up off the floor (laughs) or something like that. And I'd be lying if I said I I didn't see the allure of slipping into that Mm -hmm. stereotype, Mm -hmm. but I see even more the danger and the anxiety that comes from that. Like a persona like that is so small and I don't think leaves any room to be a person in process. It's actually, it's one of the reasons why like I don't have a social media presence. I don't keep an email list because I don't ever want to be a product Mm. because Mm. a product has to be finished. And I feel like once I have to be finished, I'm fucked. <laughs> like that's it. It's that, I have no more blunt or honest, honest way to say it. And actually, I think that's a big part of of what ended me up interested in exploring ideas and practices like like the ones that you and I have explored together in the work that we've shared. Mm. You know, because when I was when I was growing up, I was really severely asthmatic and. Uh, my I experienced my body as this thing that was just constantly betraying me. Mm. Like when we had to do the president's fitness challenge when I was in grade school, you know, that you have to like run a mile and do push-ups and sit and reach and all. Like I did the mile in 15 minutes, which is a brisk walk. And then I puked and fainted at the end. Oh like God. I couldn't, <laughs> me and my body were not on good terms, but my brain was another story. I was... Mm like bright from the starting gate and always got really rewarded for that. So I graduated at the top of my class in high school and the top of my class in college and was studying economics and got invited to compete for Rhodes and Marshall scholarships, which are like, like mm-hmm. big deal international mm-hmm. fellowships. If you're an academic or, I mean, these are things that have like made presidents and, all sorts of influential doors open in people's lives. And, and I got one Mm. and then I just freaked out because it was like, I had climbed a, a very clear and prescribed path up to the top of a really hard mountain. And when I got to the peak, all I saw was more mountain in the distance Mm. and I looked Mm. around and I didn't like anything about where I was standing. And I, I experienced it as this sort of like betrayal. Like again, in that moment, when I got this call that should have changed my life for the better, I threw up and I passed out and I was like, Oh, here comes my body back again to betray me. But now I look back on that, not as a betrayal, but like a really powerful warning sign. Because if you would have asked my head, I was doing everything right. But if you would ask my heart, which I hadn't been talking to very much at the time, something was really wrong. Mm. I was headed down a road that wasn't helping me be happy and wasn't, it just wasn't, it wasn't right for me. So I, uh, I chucked it. I chucked it without anywhere to go. Uh, no better plan laid out 
no alternate route and uh, had like a nice healthy bout of depression for a year or so mm-hmm. and, and then said, okay, I, I got to dig my way out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to dig my way out with more than just this brain that got me into this mm-hmm. mess, mm-hmm. which is when I started doing yoga and practicing meditation and, and, and looking for ways to have a different kind of relationship with what the heck was going on in my mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that, Sam. There's so much I want to ask you. So let me just take a moment to sort of see what feels most enlivening here. Was there already a, to what extent was that warning that came from you? Like, like this moment where your body just collapses and says literally a whole body. No, like I'm going to, I'm going to, projectile this away and make you fall to the ground rather than you accept this. That sounds like, that sounds to me like some awareness building inside of you for a time that, that bounced up against a a moment where it simply is not use subtler signals, but had to tell you like, in no uncertain terms, let this go. And I wonder, as you look back, and the life leading up to that and the ways in which you were rewarded and rewarded and rewarded for the, the intellect. Were there other signs along the way that, that you see now or that you would point to for, and I guess I ask in the spirit of anyone who might be feeling some amount of something in relation to the path they're on now and are just maybe not listening to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's a weird thing because like a psychologist might look at that experience and go, oh, Sam, you had a panic attack, which is exactly what psychologists told me when I went to talk to them about what had happened. Like, oh, that's just a panic attack. You're anxious about what's going on. But that, like, to me, that's not a useful descriptor, right? Because it doesn't tell me any of the why behind what's going on. And it certainly didn't tell me what to do about yes. what was going on. Um, yeah, there's something deeply existential, it sounds like, for you going on. And a panic attack just is like a sort of yeah. description of a physiological event or something. Yeah, and, and and you know, in retrospect, I came to realize that I had gotten really good at suppressing a lot of feedback, not just from my body, but from my environment. Mm. And... Mm. Uh, And I think I started on that at a really early age, you know, and sometimes that kind of suppression can be useful, right? Like if you're an eight-year-old kid who's having a a really severe asthma attack, Mm -hmm. I felt like as a kid at the time, I felt like I was like drowning in my own breath and the anxiety of that would make it worse. So I had intimate experience with a feedback loop of listening to my body when something was wrong and the act of listening, making the experience worse. Mm. 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 And I had a lot of training actually as a kid growing up with asthma about how not to attend to that Mm. so that I could get through it. And I'm glad I did, because I think there could have been times I could have ended up in the hospital otherwise, or who knows what. But I didn't have any, I didn't have any inkling 
that there was another way of listening. The choice I, the choice I saw was like, I can listen to what's going on in my body. I can tune into these subtle signals. I knew they were there on mm. some level, mm. um, but they're going to mess me up. They're going to mm. betray me. Mm. Or I can mm. learn to not listen and I can get through and I can tune into other things. Mm. You know, I can look at all the gold stars and stickers that show up on my test on my, and let those make me happy. I can, you know, I can relish in the medals that get hung around my neck when I graduate and let those make me happy. Mm. Mm. Um, and so I became really good at not listening to a part of my experience. And it wasn't until I started practicing yoga and meditation that I opened up to the idea that there might be another way of listening, which honestly is, is how I experience those practices as practices of teaching my body and my mind and my heart how to live together in the same room. And when you were kind of post the letting go and the collapse and what you describe as, as sort of the depression, a healthy depression, to what extent did, did you are, were you already aware that this doorway of kind of uh, deep attention and listening and alignment of mind, body, and heart, like did, did were there some breadcrumbs already there or were you kind of in the dark going like looking for something? Like how did you connect to this particular path of healing and listening? Uh, in my case, honestly, it was a, it was a happy accident. Um, like I, someone suggested I might do well with a yoga class. And I was like, are you kidding me? Touching my toes. Like I had to do that nonsense in grade school. It sucked. Yeah, been there, <laughs> I done that. I, there's this presence yeah. challenge. I want to tell you about that. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, I knew it was going to be a bad time. Um, you know, but from the low vantage point of depression, a lot looks good. Mm. <laughs> and, mm. uh, and I had just enough, cynicism and nihilism at the time to be like, well, why not? I, I can't give you a reason why, but I also can't give you a compelling reason why not. So what the heck? And, um, and to be honest, when I took my first yoga class, I hated it. I, cause one of the things that was true for me is like, once I opened up to a more honest conversation between my body and my mind and my heart, some of those players were pretty angry <laughs> at having been ignored mm, and discounted mm, for mm. decades of my life. Mm. And I'm, I'm putting it a little bit more grimly than it was, but one of the things that I, I remember to this day from my first yoga class was, was at the end when we all laid down for a nap, which was you know shavasana but i didn't know that word i just knew oh we're all laying down and closing our eyes this is cute we get a nap at the end and um i always look back on it as a time in which nothing happened and i i mean that like pretty literally i wasn't happy i wasn't sad i was i i, I wasn't it almost just felt like i wasn't mm. and coming from where i was coming that was a significant improvement <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a, it was a quiet, 
unlike any I think I had ever encountered. Hmm. Maybe one of a few times in my life to that point where I felt like my mind didn't have a job it needed to do. Hmm. Um, either a, a what I would call a good job of like, I don't know, making me feel good or improving things or uh, a sneaky job, like pushing things away or suppressing mm. things. It was mm. like, it was like my mind just was in the back seat, And that's why I kept coming back. Cause I was like, Oh, that's something. Mm. That's something. Mm. Mm. And it sure was. Cause for like the next 20 years, I kept yeah. doing it. You can uh, and uh, and I can sort of speak from firsthand experience that 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 you, that you do it in a really generous and graceful and um, deeply rooted way. And and by by deeply rooted, I mean like it's very it's my experience of your teaching is one that draws on a variety of wells, including sort of the Kripalu Yoga particular expression of the yogic tradition but also also like you've weaved back in what we might describe as western wisdom traditions or knowledge traditions and 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 maybe many other more besides so you're kind of you know i've been to yoga classes where like deep bow of respect to the person but you can tell that they're they haven't yet connected to their voice yet or to their way of being in that role as teacher and i feel like you are in your role as teacher really fully and deeply and and I wonder if one of that, like, I would love to hear how that resonates with you. And maybe we could explore what it was like for you to move to that role. Because in the moment we're in now, you're just kind of going, wow, this is something. This nothing is something. And I kind of want to know more, <laughs> more about it. Yeah. Um, you, I, I feel like I, I fell into teaching sort of sideways. Because um, I moved to New York thinking that I... You know, I finished graduate school and did a teacher training program at Kripalu Center with no intention of becoming a yoga teacher, but thinking, oh, I, I by that point, I was really enjoying yoga mm-hmm. and I was finishing grad school, which was incredibly focused and demanding. And I thought, I'll give myself yoga teacher training as a treat at the end because it'll be nothing like grad school. And then I can move to New York and it will support me in maintaining this practice in a new place where I don't know anybody or, mm. or any yoga teachers or anything like that. Uh, little did I know that in a lot of ways, yoga teacher training at Kripalu was going to feel a lot like grad school. And also <laughs> when I moved to New York, yoga studios would be everywhere. So I would never have to teach myself if I didn't want to. Mm. But um, I, I settled into the city with a, a sense that I was going to do one thing. I was going to have a career in another direction and teaching yoga might be a hobby, just like a casual thing I could share with, you know, folks I knew who were interested artists who were friends. I ended up going to grad school in theater after I chucked an economics career and got my MFA at the American repertory theater. Um, And it just turns out I got it backwards. Like the more and more professional my work became in the theater, the less and less nourishing I found it. And the more and more professional my work teaching yoga became mm. more and more rewarding. I found it. Mm. Ironically, I think I, I was 
interested in both things for the same reason, um, which actually is not the performative element. I think both things have a performative component to it. But I was always interested in the way that I felt like both of those endeavors made a space for folks to sit down and explore what it means to be a human being, Mm. which Mm. I think you can do in the theater through experiencing stories that feel sometimes truer than real life through their fantasy. Mm. And I think you can do on a yoga mat or a meditation cushion just by paying attention to the experience of what's happening right now. Um, But the fun thing about teaching yoga and meditation was I didn't have to audition for that. No one else had to write a script that allowed me to do that. I didn't have to like, no one had to pick me. I could just, I could just do it. And I was like, Oh, look, I don't need all of the costumes and the setting for this. We can just sit down and and breathe and watch Mm. and feel Mm. and explore a little something together. Mm. Um, so I think the the shift for me was um, natural in that sense, but also challenging in the sense be- that something different starts to happen when a practice you're passionate about becomes your job. Mm-hmm. Definitely, uh, um, you know, I, I've I've said to many emerging teachers in in the field, you know, just give it consideration because sometimes when you work at the donut store, the last thing you want at the end of the day is a donut. (laughs) Um, And it, it takes, it takes extra care to make sure that I am nourished by this practice. Even as I, I try to make space for other people to be nourished Mm. by it Mm. because those two things can get in each other's way Mm. sometimes. Mm. Mm. That's so important. I can think of a number of things of things in my life that um, felt had had a had a sort of taste of freedom or salvation or or redemption or or discovery that I was like, oh, that's it. And then to like put all of this existential pressure on the that that very deeply personal experience can just squeeze the nourishment out of it. The suddenly oh, that's it. And this is how it's all going to work. And now wait, now I have to figure out how to make it work. And there's all, whereas, whereas the initial arrival, like you, your version of the arrival was like, wow, I'm just here. Yeah. Mine's just here, but it doesn't have to do anything. And like, there's nothing to put on that. You're just here. And so I hear that paradox of like, now you have a role that you're playing and you also still want to just be able to access the practice. You know, one of my, um, uh, one of my favorite teachers and and someone I really admire for their teaching, he's passed now, but a guy named Michael Stone, um, who is also a psychologist and often in the way he would talk about yoga and meditation practice would draw on examples from psychology. And he was a big fan of Jung and would talk about like personas and what it means mm-hmm. to have a persona. And, mm-hmm. and he either attributed to young or quoted young as saying like, it's not a problem to have a persona. The problem is to have too few. And he would often describe, <laughs> he would often describe a kind of enlightenment of a sort that comes from being really skillful and fluid 
at changing masks, at mm. changing personas, at mm. shifting roles from one thing to another thing, of being fluid in that way, where you can be the person that is needed in the moment you are in, which is, I think, not at all a kind of uh, like dissociative identity disorder sort of thing at all. I think it's a, a really fully human thing that that we're in a better space if we don't get stuck yes. in who we are. Yes. yes. Um, and and I feel like a lot of um, a lot of the quote unquote traditions I grew up in would argue against that in sometimes perverse ways. Like I remember in graduate school, the artistic director of the theater at, at one day pulled us all into the room to give this, I guess you would, I would call it a sermon of a sort as we were all preparing to go out into the wide world and become artists. He said, don't have a plan B. If you have a plan B, you will do a plan B. And if you want to be an artist, you have to only have plan A. And we all like nodded and deeply internalized this message, which I look back on now and I'm like, yes, and that's crippling. And in point of fact, every artist I have really deeply admired has loved something else more. And the Mm -hmm. same thing is true Mm -hmm. in like Mm -hmm. new age traditions, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's a, Mm -hmm. I hear this story attributed to so many gurus who say things like, If you want to find water, you don't dig a lot of shallow holes. You dig Mm -hmm. one hole really deep, which is exactly the sort of thing a guru would say, by the way, because they want all your energy and attention. They're (laughs) they're your one deep hole. But here's the thing. I actually know a few engineers who dig wells. And I brought this phrase to one of them. He goes, that's absurd. You want to know what you do if you really want to find water? You dig a bunch of holes pretty deep. And when one looks really good, you go all the way in. Mm, mm, And mm. you don't stop digging there because every well will run dry sooner or later. Mm, mm. And I was like, well, I never thought I would get that kind of wisdom from an engineer, but looky there. Yeah, was so that's so powerful. Mm. Mm. Are there um, any wells in your life now that you've started digging recently that are sort of in promising to you, starting to show some trickles of water, or even even some flows of water, like from this moment looking ahead. You know, the one that comes to mind for me right now is I have been really endeavoring to make my life smaller Mm. Mm. Um, in almost every way I can name. Um, Part of this has to do with having two kids that are growing up so fast. My son Bridge is eight. He's going to be nine real soon. My daughter, Elliot's five. She's going to be six real soon. And having a sense of like, if I don't do right by them, what am I doing? And like, even now, as we're talking, like they're upstairs playing and learning and growing. And, you know, they've got so much support 
I'm not the only one, but I'm a really important one. Mm. And I want to make sure that if I'm not with them, I'm doing something that ranks, so to speak. Mm. And I, I count this as something that, that I sure. Yeah. I'm like, part of me is like, Oh boy, like we got, we got like 30 minutes left. I better make good. <laughs> but, but yeah. you know, yeah. it was it really resonance. It was born out of this sense that I feel like so much of not just so much of my work, but so much of the world was pulling my attention wider and wider mm. and wider. You know, we have a technology now, an infrastructure that can make us aware of so much. I know stuff that's going on between Russia and Ukraine halfway around the world where I have never been or will be. And I'm not saying it's unimportant. I think it's incredibly important. And there are things that I feel like we should be aware of, right? Like as the planet is warming, as, you know, bodies are washing up on shore yeah. in places. Yeah. We should know that that's out there. But at the same time, I'm also aware that I have so little agency there. And this is, I feel like I'm, a, I'm on a soapbox. I can already feel my feet standing on it. <laughs> okay. But I okay. feel like there, there's something perverse when we are told so much about the dangers of global warming and our responsibility to bend that curve. And what is it? I think it's something like 50 companies are responsible for the majority yes. of global warming yes. on the entire planet. Yes. And I'm like, don't turn to someone in, in Brooklyn, New York, and tell them it's on, on their shoulders <laughs> to do anything. And I mean anything about global warming mm. Mm. When, when, there's, when the deck is stacked in yeah. that way. And I feel like the deck is stacked in so many ways that amplify our awareness and diminish our agency. And so the question for me has really become, where do I have awareness and agency? Mm -hmm. And I feel like, for, like, to me, that's a big part of Dharma, right? Not that, like this idea of like, what is my purpose and calling it in the world? It has to do with the spaces where awareness and agency overlap. Not only can I see it, but I can make a difference in it. Mm. And so I, I, I try to start with like the sphere of influence that's right in front of my face. Mm. Right? Mm. My, my kid is hungry. I can make breakfast. And I don't think that that's a revolutionary act, but it's certainly not nothing because I'm the one who's standing in the kitchen. Mm. 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 Thank you, Sam. Yeah, that really resonates deeply with me. And I appreciate you stepping on the soapbox for a moment. And a part of me wants to step up with you and sort of acknowledge that uh, that not only is the deck stacked, but but the forces that have created that stacked deck are self-perpetuating and self-amplifying. And so those 50 companies keep their decks keep getting thicker and denser and they have more cards to play. And 
you know, without trying to say that's evil over there, but rather that's that's a a way of being human that's being fed and fed and fed and and growing to the point where where it's almost like there's no one human even inside of that organization who can who could stop the geek like there's not a lever that they could pull to actually just stop everything that that even that organization will have to do real eye-opening work and each of them as individuals look at each other in the eyes and say is this really how we want to be together yeah right so there's like that like the 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 stacked deck is filled with people who are who are suffering and and trapped inside of all of the same or the analogous dynamics that we've been touching on um yeah right and so where's their agency and and awareness right so maybe it's like yeah play with me there what's what's coming well i i feel like in that i i imagine i believe in in that dynamic yeah those folks are also victims of that system but they have a different kind of well, different kind of victimhood, I guess, because they also have agency. They yeah. have a different caliber of complicity, you know, like Exxon is one of those companies. I'm sure I have filled my car up with gas from Exxon yes. probably this month. So am I complicit too? Yeah. But again, there's a question of proximity and right. agency there. And, uh, and that is really that's something that I think is really important um, because all of those companies, all of those companies yeah. spend money educating people about the risks of climate change, but you know what they don't do is stop <laughs> sucking fossil fuels out of the earth at the degree to which they are. Yes. So, yes, there's so, like an, there's like an abundance of agency and even some awareness there, but the kind of, awareness may be needed to actually act. I mean, there's, I've, I've heard talks given that like in front of engineers at oil companies say, Oh, sustainable technology. Yeah. Yeah. We could, we could make this, we could do it right now. There's not some technology off in the future that we're waiting for. We could actually do it right now. So there's something there. I mean, this happens to, uh, this happens in myriad seemingly insignificant ways that drive me nuts, right? Like I I haven't been in a Walmart in ages, but the last time I was, do you know what, what they asked me as I was checking out, would you like to donate 50 cents to such and such a cause? I don't even remember what the cause was. I'm sure it was incredibly worthy. And my reaction was like, no, Walmart, I would not like to, I would like you to do it. Yes. Yeah. Every time I shop here, you donate 50 cents to this charity. You corporate monolith, like you like crass amalgam of power in America. That's your job. (laughs) That's what I would like. Yes. But like, what, what am I going to do? Turn to the cashier who is working for minimum wage and be like, can you get this taken care of? (laughs) Which is like, and I think that's what's, sinister about yes that. yes because that's not, the banality of it yeah that it's not wrong to encourage folks to give but there's an incredible disjuncture between the way it's asked and the way it's happening the way things are happening behind yes. the scenes yeah all of which is this is like all of which has made me not cynical, not cynical at all, 
just really starting to fess up to the idea of I got, I don't know how many years left Mm. to play Mm. this game, but let me make sure that I'm doing stuff that is going to matter. And, and so I try to stay, I try to stay with my community um, Mm -hmm. as much as possible. Mm. Not only because I feel like maybe I can do something for the good there, but also because I find that actually way more nourishing, Mm. way Mm. more nourishing. Mm. Mm -hmm. So there is a selfishness about it, to be honest. And it's not a closing the doors of, of my life and, and barring out the rest of the world. It, it's just a desire to maintain focus where I think it matters most, knowing that so much of the rest of the world is hyper-engineered to pull my attention mm. in so many other places. And, and to underline that, maybe in one or two more sentences, this recognition that if your attention is pulled wide, into places where you don't have any agency, but your anger is there, your rage is there, your fear is there. It's the opposite of nourishing. It's draining. It's depleting. Mm-hmm. And in the places where you do still have agency, you will no longer have the energy to be show up in the ways that you're describing. So that, that it's like that what, what I hear you describing is a place from which you are, it's sort of self-perpetuating because you're nourished by it and therefore allowed to bring even more of your gift and self to these places where you have agency. Yeah. And it's not even, I mean, look, the, like the, the outrage machine is particularly well-oiled in our country. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. You know, so what you said about like anger and upset and, and all those things, yeah, those are hugely motivating, but also like the joy and the fun, mm. you know, like I've, I've, been that person recently who like put up some little comment on a Reddit thread or a Facebook <laughs> post. It's like, Ooh, how many likes did I get? And yeah. I can feel like, Ooh, and then I want to check again and Oh, it kind of tickles and it's fun. And, <laughs> and who, who the fuck cares? Mm. Like, mm. what have I contributed mm. to at the end of the day? Mm. It's, I know while I'm doing it, like, I can't think of any other word for it. It's totally masturbatory. Like yeah. it creates nothing but idle entertainment. Mm. I'm so with you. And and I want to name that um, there's a sense in which that idle, that sort of idle self-satisfaction because it feels kind of good is a sort of veneer that that can be placed over a facing of like, if you were to turn away from the veneer and by you, I mean any human who might be ensconced inside of that energy and you discover that there's not much there, that there's an emptiness or a hole, you don't have a community to turn to. Um, You don't have people who see you and value you. You don't have some of the other things that we know we need as, as social creatures, right? There's this way in which the, the, the kind of life you're aspiring to and describing has been by, by these same 50 companies, maybe, or some, you know, some version has slowly, but surely been kind of pulled out from underneath us. So there's a sort of uh, tragic 
kind of challenge that we're facing, which is to sort of both help people see that this veneer will never do more than scratch the surface, but also help them like, well, then what, then what, what else is there? And, and again, this is something I feel like I circle around every day and this might take, this might take a second to get to, but what what you're describing, Andy, uh, really rankles me in this particular way, which is I'm right there with you. And I'm also super sensitive to the folks who maybe like get home at the end of the day. And that's all they have left Mm -hmm. in the tank. That's all they've got Mm -hmm. the bandwidth for. And what the fuck is wrong with a world where someone is going to work for a 12 hour shift or a 16 hour Mm -hmm. shift and they come home, home, so drained mm-hmm. that that's it. That's all they've got left to muster. And they, and they might know it, but it's something. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to take away that lifeline. If it feels like a lifeline, I don't even want to take away the idle entertainment. If it feels like idle entertainment, but like I spent the better part of the summer of 2020 working with nurses in Brooklyn hospital mm-hmm. center who mm-hmm. were on the front lines of COVID here in New York city doing essential work and with a super capital E and zero irony around that phrase, essential worker. And to see the way, even in the best of times, the medical system is set up to grind those folks down Mm. again and again and again. Like I w- they asked me to come in to do uh, a resilience program. And I said, sure. They're like in my community. What could be better? And I said, what kind of dedicated time do the nurses have for this? And they said, none. <laughs> and I was like, well, there's your problem mm-hmm. right there mm-hmm. is that you're running people on a 12 hour shift and they don't have any protected time. The physicians did. Mm-hmm. The nurses didn't. And we had to set it up in such a way that the program was happening like at shift change and like, show me a nurse who's going to get super excited to stick around for an extra half an hour and meditate after they've just done a 12 hour day in the middle of COVID overnight. And it's seven in the morning. And my, and, and I feel like this is what I'm getting around to is I feel like, in that dynamic, it sounds like I might be. It sounds like I might be suggesting, "Oh, Sam spends all his time at his house doing deep and meaningful things." While he <laughs> use social media and all the trifles of our culture. No, no, I get sucked in the way everybody else does, and it makes me irate that we are all swimming in a sea where so often. That's all we've got the space yeah. for because attention is precious. Yeah. Like that is a precious natural resource. Mm. And folks are mining that yes. from us in ways that I think are not just unkind, but dangerous. Mm. Mm-hmm. And even in the best of all possible worlds, the kind of attention that, that, we really thrive on is rare. Mm. 
right? Like, it's not like we got 24 hours in a day and all attention is created equal, right? Some folks are forced to pay attention to things by virtue of their race, their community, their circumstance, their class, right? There are people in my neighborhood who have to pay attention every day, have to pay attention every day to things that I have the privilege to ignore as a middle-aged white straight guy. And what I'm really interested in is what can we do individually and collectively that might better protect that precious resource for the folks who need it the most and give us all more access to it Mm. Mm. and more choice with it. Yeah. You know, how is that, uh, how is that alive for you right now in your work and your practice? Like, like, how are you living that question right now? What can we do to ensure that more of us, especially those who need it, have access to the kind of attentional spaces, the connected spaces, the nourishing spaces that you're standing for? Well, for me, I feel like I'm tr- I, I end up trying to straddle up a pretty wide space, which is to I, say, you're, you're tall. You've got long legs. <laughs> long legs. Long legs. Um, I feel like it's really important in the work I do to focus on the people who are right in front of me, mm-hmm. whether they're nurses or community safety folks or butchers and bakers and candlestick makers, like who's right in front of me and, and what did they come here? Most folks I, I see are coming because they want some, you know, mind body tools for building resilience. And for me, it's important to acknowledge that there is a system we're all operating inside that is torturing some of us yeah. yes. around those things. And that, and that word is not an overstatement. I think if you are, yeah. and I, I work with community safety folks, I work with people in hospital systems, education systems, like this is the majority of what I do. And I believe that those systems are torturing the people inside them. Um. And I believe that those systems should exist and should be improved massively, massively. I mean, I worked at at a a medical school for many years that had a beautiful brand new building. And um, I remember one day the room where we were going to have our sessions was locked and we couldn't get in. And they had a gorgeous, massive balcony. And it was a beautiful summer day in New York City. And I said, oh, let's go out there. And one of the students looked at me and said, we can't go out there. It's locked too. And I was like, why can't you go out there? And without blinking, she goes, oh, when they built the building, they built the the, uh, railings too low. And I was like, what's wrong with those railings? They were like three and a half feet tall or whatever. And she goes, they built them too short to prevent us from throwing ourselves off. And I was like, you gotta be freaking kidding me. So now there's this stark reminder of a gorgeous Mm. balcony in a beautiful glass building in New York Mm. City, Mm. where these medical students are entering into a field where burnout is endemic, suicide is a legitimate risk, and every day they go to school in a place where the door is locked to a beautiful space they can't access because the railings are too short to prevent people from throwing themselves off. Like, 
That's, yeah. that's an environment that recognizes its own capacity to torture people just by mm. virtue of the rules mm. and regulations they mm. create. But even though I believe that bur- like burnout and all of those things are systemic in every case, I believe that burnout is never the fault of an individual. It is always a s- caused yes. by systemic factors. Yes. I feel like then I have to acknowledge that. And then quietly shut that door and say, and here we are, and we're all going to get out of bed tomorrow and go do the work that we have chosen to do in an environment that will never be appropriately resourced in a landscape that is not only never perfect, but so far from it. And yet we're going to get up and go to work, which is actually a spirit I admire, someone who can get out of bed and go into a traumatic environment by choice with open eyes, I think that person is strong by default before Mm. we say anything else Mm. about what's going on in that person. And so I have to kind of quietly close that door and say, yes, all of that is true, but we're going to go do our jobs. And here are some things that might help us do what we've chosen to do in a way that is better for you. But I have to always keep in mind at the same time, that's not to make us complacent. Mm. That's not Mm. to make us accept the system. That's there to help us survive inside the system and hopefully be alive to change the system. Mm. 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 And part of what has become really important for me is saying loudly no to organizations who I believe want to do this work as a Band-Aid or as a way of transferring responsibility for systemic issues onto their staff and onto individuals, or sometimes as a way, frankly, of, of maybe not consciously or intentionally, but gaslighting the people that are working for them. And and I've one of the reflections of my privilege is that I have been in a spot recently where I feel like, yes, I can say that loud. No, like I'm not going to work with you because I don't think you want to use these tools in a way that is right. I think you want to use these tools to keep doing what you've been doing and I don't want to endorse it. Yeah. And there's so much here to be able to say Hmm. no. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It is such a privilege to be able to say no. You know, the, you're describing uh, like an, a sort of it sound in a way I'm experiencing as an equivalent of that moment where Walmart says, let's at, give people a chance to donate 50 cents at the aisle. It's like, let's give people a chance to meditate so that they can keep keep being tortured by us. And oh. right. Yeah, like it's like, as soon as you said that, it made me think of I feel like that I wanted to I just wanted to like trumpet this from the rooftops when it happened it was a little while ago now but not that long ago do you remember when amazon started putting in meditation coffins inside their warehouse did you see this no okay so i have to imagine that you and a lot of people you are who are listening understand lots of the ups and downs that come with a lifestyle at amazon and to be totally transparent I order tons of stuff from Amazon. So I have all the complicity that comes with that. But one of Amazon's wellness solutions was to insert in their warehouses meditation cubicles that were slightly smaller than an average phone booth. 
and opaque with like a chair inside and a little fake plant inside. And I presume some meditation recordings that you could play. I found it personally disgusting, but also hilarious because I was like, well, if, if that company wanted to broadcast how oblivious it was Mm. to Mm. the harm it is creating on its own people, that's a beautiful way to do it. <laughs> Literally. Oh I mean, it almost sounds like an art project, like a guerrilla art project inside Amazon to point out that it, it, that's how, how much of a parody it is. I, I, when I first encountered it, I was like, this has got to be a prank. This cannot be real because it seemed so obvious from the outside. But no, what it was really demonstrating was, was the lack of clarity from the inside. Yeah. Like, if you can't handle the abuse we're dishing out, here's a tiny column you can throw yourself into to go away, right? Mm. Like, how clearly Mm. have they signaled you, the employee, are the issue? Here, We we made this thing where you can go away and you come (laughs) back when you're better. I I just, I mean, I'm also realizing as we're talking about this that... uh, no, no one who's listening is going to come and meditate with me because of this podcast. Because they're going to be like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> well, I wanted uh, to hear. I hope that's not true. I'm sure that's not true. Deep breathing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's not true because part of what, like, part of the paradox that modern life hits us with, and and when I say us, there are different like ways in which we could who are we including in the us, but I'm going to try and make that as wide as possible, which it hits us in all, whatever, whatever sort of work we do, there's this moment when you at some part of you is feeling that torture and you may be in a pretty privileged, materially privileged position, but I talk to a lot of people who are financially secure and past a certain point, like you encounter a a kind of torture that they're undergoing. Yeah. Well, and you know, for me, I think one of the, one of the most important misconceptions about practices like yoga and mindfulness, or, or I would say any practice where this buzzword of enlightenment is floating in the ether, this promise of illumination and waking up is, is hovering. I feel like the big misconception is that I believe you don't wake up out of suffering. Mm-hmm. You wake up into suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and that what these tools I believe are designed to do is to help us be awake in a world that is hurting and still ready to do what we need to do. To, that's a superpower. Mm-hmm. To reach mm-hmm. into a space where there is suffering, to extend a hand like that, to be open-eyed, to be a good witness, to be a voice in an environment where the instinct is to recoil, to turn away, which is a good instinct. Sometimes that's all we got. But, you know, this is one of the things that I, one of the reasons why I feel like it's really important to me to be working with educators, you know, like I I run a program for the department of education in New York city and we've done programs in medical schools and on hospitals and some programs with community safety groups. Cause these, 
are folks for whom it is their job to reach out and serve in a space where, where there's hurt. And I believe we we're all called to do that, whether it's the hurt in our own heart or the hurt in our family or the hurt in our history or in our office or whatever it is um, to be able to, to reach into that mm-hmm. and, and stay open in that, mm. which isn't easy. No, I don't, I, I struggle with it every single day, but I feel like that's like the, the loftiest perch I can reach for. Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you what, uh, if anyone listening is having some part of them feeling like this sounds scary, like the, the way that what you just described lands with me is a wonderful invitation into like a whole body resiliency, a whole self resiliency that is not an escape from or a panacea for our, the suffering that exists in nature and also the sufferings that we create for ourselves, but rather a way to stand with it. That is just as like beautiful as any human could be is, is the capacity to simply stand with it and then maybe reach out that hand to someone else. So that, rem- that's beautiful. Thank you for that. I, re- I remember my very first teacher trainer at Kripalu, um, who was a really great mentor and had spent, when Kripalu was an ashram, uh, had spent years of his life practicing as a renunciate. So like he had, he had taken that, I get off, I want to get off the ride kind of journey. And um, I remember talking to him and I don't remember exactly what the conversation was, but at one point he said, you know, there will come a point where with practices like these, like yoga and meditation, et cetera, where you will have to choose between Mm -hmm. being happy and knowing what's real. And these aren't practices that were originally designed to make you happy. Mm -hmm. These were practices that were originally designed to help you deal with what's real. And, and I, I don't know if you're going to have to retitle this episode of your podcast from the wonder dome to the terror dome or something because of <laughs> the vibe that I've been on this afternoon. But I do believe, I do believe with all my heart that whether or not tools like these will make me happy I I have seen how they help me be ready. Yes. Yes. And and how they've helped me stay honest. Mm. And for me, whatever happiness I can find when I'm honest and ready is so much more durable. Yes. Even if it isn't always as sweet. Mm. Mm. Uh, I don't know how much, if at all, you um, have read about or personally experienced therapeutic work around uh, specifically working with therapists, therapists and healers around our relationship to fear. But um, what I hear you speaking towards from your own journey into it and your practices that I just want to share 
as we as we laugh a bit about the idea of being in the terror dome as opposed to the wonder dome is a thing that that was really hard for me to learn but that helped me so much on on my journey was was the invitation to meet the parts of me that were afraid rather than try to repress the fear and that thought of going towards the fear produced its own fear and so there's a way in which there's kind of a magnetic kind of effect of like of being repulsed, repulsed until finally somehow I made my way around it and actually sat with the things that, that I was afraid of. And my fear hasn't gone away, but the wonder to that, I, that the, the show speaks towards is much more deeper and expansive as a result of the times where with the support of a loving, caring, wise guide, I was in fact invited to sit with the, the realities of life that held a charge of fear. And so there's some paradox here that we're playing with that feels really important to at least point towards, which is to say that uh, there's something about going towards reality that is terrifying. That's also at the same time as wondrous. Yeah. And, and for me, it's really tricky, right? Because I feel the natural impulse around fear is to get away from it. Yes, and that's probably yes. really good sometimes. Yes. And and I'm aware of the fact that glib statements like like go toward your fear can become maxims that can be used yes. to abuse people. I've <laughs> I've seen it happen yes. in cultures and cults and things like that. So then it leaves me with the question of, well, when is when is when is it a fear that I need to step back from? And when is it a fear that I need to step into? And how do I know the difference? Mm. Mm. How do I know the difference? Mm. Because like, to me, a next door cousin of wonder is an emotion like awe. Yeah. And I believe I may be getting this wrong. Some, no, some, you're right. Terror um, is part of awe. Yeah. Some, I was going to say some listening etymologist might tweet me about this later, but that's fine because I'm not on Twitter. So I'll just happily miss it. But yeah, yeah that like terror is that sense or awe is that blend, I believe, of awareness and, and terror. Yes. Of being face to face with something that is so much bigger than you, but you're there and you're aware. Yes. And I think there's value in that too. Yes. Even as I said earlier that I'm trying to make my life smaller. <laughs> so that's like, to me, that's the big asterisk on it is yeah. where can I make my life small enough that I have agency inside my awareness? Yeah. And where can I step out now and again when, I, when it's needed and stand in that place of awe mm. and be like, Holy shit. Mm, mm, mm. We're approaching our time boundary, Sam, but, uh, and in a way I sense you've been speaking to this, the whole conversation, but I thought you said near the top of the call that there are, there's a sort of commitment you're making to life and a space in your life where you want to sit with questions like, what does it mean to, to be with my kids in a way that's, that's right for them? And, what does it mean to think about leaving a legacy or leaving footprints for others to follow? And, and I wonder if you'd be, 
be willing to just speak to that more explicitly. Like, how are you sitting with that question of the footprints you're, you're hoping to leave for others who might follow as we, as we thread our way into these territories filled with paradox and asterisks and, and terror and wonder and agency and awareness? Like, how are you, what footprints are you hoping that you're leaving right now? Um, I'm really glad you asked because I can hear myself drifting toward like, lofty and esoteric and yeah. metaphysical ideas in our conversation, which is a habit I have. Well, the um, show, I, as is a habit I have. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'd be very happy to wrap up by putting my boots firmly back on the ground, nice. being totally nice. honest and saying like, it's, it's for me, it's sitting with the, the real world challenge of like, how do I not yell at my kids yeah. when they trigger me? And it gets overwhelming. Mm. How do I build an environment that at least for a little while, they feel like there's a place that's really safe, that their feelings are okay. Mm. Because it's a, it's, it's a, it is a crazy thing to tell a person living in a crazy environment that it's not okay to feel crazy. Yeah. And my kids are living in a crazy environment right now. And that was probably true before 2020. Yeah. But again, to get just really honest and granular, it's like, how do I, how do I stay calm enough to make a space where my kids can feel their feelings and grow and learn and be safe enough to be curious enough to challenge themselves? And when I fuck up, can I stay honest and open enough to apologize and to show them that like, I'm not a finished product. I'm figuring it out kind of like they're figuring it out. I've just been working on it for like 40 more years, which means maybe there are some ways I can help them. And maybe there are some ways that I can't help them because, mm. mm. cause I've been, digging in the same grooves for too long you know yeah thanks sam thanks for putting some boots on the ground here at the end around these what what are to me at least and i sense to you in your own way really important questions about how we are as beings in this world that we're all sharing and uh there's lots of places to look and see us being ways that are scary or hurtful or torturous or terrifying. And there are also ways to show up in the midst of all of that with some humility and grace and a commitment to being of help where you can. And I really want to appreciate you putting boots on, on the ground around. If I can just show up for my kids, that's, that's important. That is it. That's the work. Well, and even if it's a mess, even when it's chaos, it would be a shame to miss it, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'd be ashamed to miss it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Sam. I'm aware now that we're at our time and I don't want you to miss it because it could be <laughs> happening right upstairs as we speak. And maybe folks listening have heard my kids bombing around upstairs too. So may we both go and see it and be with it as best as we're able. And may those who are listening in do the same. And I uh, welcome you. If there's any last words of closing you want to say, please, this is this is the moment for it. Just thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Go get, 
Go get them. Like it. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact on the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.